Hi, and welcome to the Eatmere Rule 52 podcast. We're very excited to have a special guest today, Kay Alicia Fetters. She's someone we met a few years ago, and I remember having lovely conversations with her. Then I went on to read articles she wrote, then followed her blog, then started getting her weekly newsletter. And she has a voice speaking about many of the themes that Roland and I deeply care about, and I know you listeners deeply care about, so we couldn't wait to have her as a guest on our podcast talking about self-care today. Alicia is an internationally syndicated fitness writer and strength coach. She holds a master's degree in new media from the Medal School of Journalism at Northwestern University, where she concentrated in health and science reporting. There, she also completed undergraduate work in magazine journalism and gender studies. As a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the National Sports and Conditioning Association, Alicia uses her background in research, writing, and gender issues to help people empower themselves through smart strength training. She coaches both online and in-person at Hi-Fi Fitness and Symmetry in Chicago, and apart from self, contributes to publications including Time, Women's Health, Men's Health, Runner's World, Shape, U.S. News and World Report, Stack, Born Fitness, Vice, furthermore from Equinox, and Girls Gone Strong. She is the co-author of the Women's Guide to Strength Training, which we'll include a link to. She can and... Pause. <laughs> she can usually be spotted in workout clothes and or eating. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I feel like this is almost not enough to share with our listeners and readers how awesome you are. We are so thrilled to have you here and to talk about self-care. It's such a dear theme to us, and it seems like it's showing up more and more in the media. And who better than you on the intersection of fitness, wellness, and media to talk about this? Well, thank you so much. I'm really excited to talk about it. And self-care is, um, I'm so passionate about the subject. So I think it's really critical to our overall wellness. And um, there's a lot we can, we can learn through self-care. Absolutely. So Roland's going to take it from here and ask you the first question. We have so much we want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, we met you. You were at, at the Fitness Summit a couple of years ago uh, as a writer, and I got to sit with you on a writer's panel. It was super exciting. It was great to meet you then. But you've, So you've been a writer for quite a while, uh, but when did you first start hearing about self-care in the media? And like, what was it, what was it like, the social climate like at the time that sparked it? Right. When, you know, I started writing in the health and fitness community, it was about a decade ago. Um, and then there was no real talk of quote unquote self-care. The closest that the media really came to addressing self-care was um, stress management, um, how to de-stress, um, how to cope with stress, which was kind of, it kind of made sense given the social climate. Um, we had just entered the recession. People were losing jobs or working more than ever. Um, Twitter was brand new at that time, which is crazy to think about. Um, Facebook was just expanding to people outside of college. Um, Barack Obama had just won presidency. There was a lot of change, um, but also like a sense of hope and empowerment to um, to move forward. And, you know, in terms of the fitness and wellness industry, you know, there was a lot of 
um, you know, we were talking about the thigh gap at that time, you know, skinny fat was a new concept um, and sitting disease was a new thing. Um, we were just starting to really think about wellness outside of just calories in and calories out. But I think, um, you know, at that time it was still very much um, that mentality was very pervasive still in the wellness field. And in some ways it still is, but um, you know, I really honestly didn't, start reading about self-care in the media um, until about the past five years. Um, I first learned of the term actually through therapy um, about six years ago, and it seemed like it was one of those things I heard about in therapy. And then all of a sudden, it's like I started hearing about it elsewhere. Um, you know, other people started mentioning it to me, either people who were in therapy or group therapy themselves. Or, you know, some through social media. It was really more through social media as opposed to, um, you know, large brands or media outlets that I felt first started putting out this concept. It was really more person to person. Um, but then it, you know, started growing within the last five years. And I think, you know, and within the last year or so, it's become, you can say, self-care to anybody. And that's not a new idea to anybody. Maybe people are still trying to figure out what exactly it means or how to implement it. But I feel like we're at the point where it's a common term and then people um, have some sort of resonance with it. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first started, like we were, Galena and I back then were more just in sort of entrenched in the fitness industry. And when people would talk about self-care, you could almost feel the eyes rolling among like a lot of the personal trainers and the nutrition people because they kind of realized, oh, yeah, it's valuable, but you really just need to work out and you need to work out harder. You need to eat better and, you know, couple those two things to do together and you'll be fine. The self-care seemed like a little bit too fluffy, right. fluffy for them. It's, okay. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's woo or, um, you know, it's like those soft sciences that I think, um, you know, Mental health as a field, I think, is becoming more and more accepted. Um, people are talking about it more, um, whereas it used to be, oh, therapy or, you know, counseling or really worrying about your mental health was something you didn't really, it was almost kind of shameful in an aspect. Um, and now, like, there was something that had to be intrinsically wrong with you to be seeking this out. It was kind of the attitude people put toward it. And I think more people are realizing the importance of mental health and hopefully by being more vocal about that, um, you know, there's more interest. So then there's more research and then there's more backing and it just, it's kind of a cyclical um, thing. But to your point of, you know, just exercise and eat better. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we look at, yeah, these are, those are two things you have to do to be, healthier, let's say, um, depending on what your definition of, you know, physical health is, but then how does somebody actually implement that? And I think looking at both, you know, diet and um, exercise adherence, like that's the biggest issue. Like, I mean, you can quibble over um, keto and carbs and paleo and whatnot, but at the end of the day, but, you know, studies all show that like every diet, you know, they work through, you know, caloric balance and it's really, you know, the diet that you can stick with over the long term that's going to, you know, help you, you know, reach your goals. And so what's keeping us from this adherence? A lot of times it's our 
um, our mentalities and um, our relationships with food or our bodies. And, you know, you can know exactly what to do, but that doesn't mean you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think a lot of more people, um, trainers, were starting to have to kind of think about the behavioral aspects of getting people to actually follow through on, you know, their fitness plans and, um, you know, reaching their nutritional goals. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, any sort of behavior change, it has to, has to start with, um, you know, the internal thoughts. And I think that's for a lot of, you know, trainers where the kind of idea of mental health and self-care has started to come in and um, it's become, you know, more and more um, entrenched as time goes on, you see how vital it really is to success in any area of you our know, health. You know, that reminds me uh, about that time, about 10 years ago, Roland and I were working on our first book together, which was a men's book. And I remember doing this Venn diagram on like Microsoft Word or something. Like I had no idea how to use, <laughs> how to use actual um, design programs. And we self-published, <laughs> so we didn't have a designer. So I was like, oh, we're just going to do it together. So it was like this Venn diagram of these three circles. And it's, it's as true today as it was back then. It's nice to go back 10 years and be like, oh, what we wrote 10 years ago actually is still valid. But it's these three right. circles and one is um, nutrition, one is movement or exercise. I think it was back then. And the other one's life. And right. we we had this idea that we had to help our readers figure out how to implement movement and nutrition into their life in, in a way that it enhances their life instead of having to stop it and completely overturn it and be someone else. But we, I personally right. didn't have the education at the time or the the personal experience. Like I hadn't really gone through my big self-care internal revolution to be able to write about it then the way that I can write about it now. But we were aware even back then. And around that time, we had decided that we cannot work with athletes and we can't work with these high-performance people. And we wanted to work with regular people because Roland's personal story was, hey, I was just a regular guy. I'm a corporate guy, lost a ton of weight. I can help you too. So we wanted to work with more people like him. And I think what's really happened in the in the wellness and fitness industry, for sure, is that we've all opened our doors to everybody. And in the beginning, right. most of us worked, I mean, especially me as a personal trainer in the beginning, when I was in my early 20s, I worked with these people who were motivated and ready. They were high skill, high motivation, high energy. They weren't sick. And they could do the stuff. I mean, they could show up three times a week at seven in the morning. They could whip up a protein shake. But as the population that has realized they have to, they have to, or it's nice to do something for yourself in a movement sort of way daily or nutrition has changed, as things have changed and who comes to us, we've also had to change. And I think that has been inevitable as we have decided that everyone will have access and should have access. I think it's a fundamental human right to have access to education and movement and good nutrition. And as we're becoming more inclusive and making it available to everyone, so should our skills change and how we teach that stuff. Definitely. Right. I definitely see that in a lot of the people who I work with. Um, you know, it's really, you know, I've had sessions where I've been talking to trainers afterwards and they're like, yeah, you're as much a, 
you know, a therapist or, you know, just problem solver um, mm -hmm. or support system as it is about the physical movement or reps and sets of an exercise session. I mean, it's also intertwined. Um, one doesn't exist without the other. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that the fitness community understand that and meet people where they are as opposed to just laying out here's a rule book to follow go with it by mine absolutely so i think as self-care is becoming that third little circle for the the venn diagram <laughs> we created right. back then and i've pretty much dedicated the last seven years of my life into the deepest dive into psychoemotional health I've been able to commit myself to, I can see now much clearly um, how to support everyone, including myself, through my modeling of how my clients and students and um, readers can follow. I can see it so much more clearly, but I feel like it would be so helpful if we kind of back up and from your point of view see if somebody's brand new to the idea of self-care what do you feel is a good place to start what was foundational for you definitely um i think the first step is really taking inventory um that's difficult um but it's important kind of backtracking like you mentioned um and seeing identifying what drains you rather than fills you up um what energizes you and makes you feel restored um naming your feelings, your emotions, identifying your current coping mechanisms. I think um, a lot of us think about coping, coping mechanisms as being something very extreme or only applying to certain people with certain issues or often with substance abuse. But that's not true. We all have ways in which we cope to what's going on in our life. Um, some are healthy and helpful coping mechanisms and some are not. Um, and they're often very subtle and we don't really recognize that we're doing them um, unless we're looking for them because we just, we go through life on autopilot and we've built um, a lot of these reactions um, to the stressors in our lives or to negative emotions. Um, and that, so maybe we're not meeting our needs, how we, and the most efficient or efficacious way. Um, you know, a lot, sometimes people, we um, talk about, um, you know, in terms of binge eating or nutrition, we talk about, oh, well, are you hungry? Um, no. So, okay, if you go to the refrigerator on autopilot and realize, ask yourself, oh, am I hungry? And you say, no, well, what is it? Are you bored? Are you stressed? Are you needing some sort of pick-me-up? Like, you know, what's going on there? And then what can actually meet your needs? Um, in that moment and identifying those feelings because a lot of us, you know, we don't, whether it's walking to the refrigerator or working late or getting in a, a fight with a significant other, it's, um, it's reactionary. We don't necessarily always pinpoint what our emotions are that are, you know, going, going on and driving those behaviors or those thoughts and, identifying what we need. Um, I think we just, we try to push through and we don't um, often really tune in to our own needs. So kind of establishing what those are, um, unfortunately. I mean, you can, you can try to sit down and just write a list, but it's often really not that easy. Um, mm -hmm. It's the practice of 
in the moment asking yourself, what's going on? What am I feeling in my body? Um, what do I need in this moment? What would make um, me feel better? Or um, what's not adding to my life and what is taking away? You mentioned, um, you know, approaching um, fitness and nutrition in a way that's adding to your life. Um, and I think um, both in fitness, nutrition, wellness, and in other areas of our life, we get very caught up in the shoulds and what we need to do um, that we miss what we really are needing or craving, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I have a, a, a friend and colleague, Tim Harris, who says, you know, people, when they're doing something that's not working for them, oftentimes they don't think I'm, what I'm doing is wrong, but they think I'm doing it wrong. So, so there's this sort of, there's something wrong with me mentality when the cookie cutter approach or the diet or the the movement plan or the coping strategy that should be the healthiest one, like, oh, eat radishes instead of cookies, whatever it is, doesn't work for you. (laughs) Uh, But you need to really, I mean, I've eaten so much lettuce in my life, just trying to not eat cookies. I can't even tell you. Um, but it takes it takes some. It's a common recipe substitution. <laughs> Just substitute <laughs> lettuce for cookies in this <laughs> recipe. But it's it really takes a deeper a deeper dive, and sometimes a dive you can do by yourself to really start identifying those unspoken needs, unrealized needs, so that you can start to meet them. And something that I know from my work that was very very moving at the time that I was learning it is that if you as a baby are developing in utero inside a mom who has too much challenges and they can be challenges like just socioeconomic challenges or they can be relational challenges or maybe there's other kids in the house and mom's too preoccupied with them, the baby will decrease its needs. It will decrease its nutritional needs so that mom can be okay. And then when baby's born, then when baby's born, baby won't cry. So maybe it needs a diaper change or it's hungry, but baby will wait and be a quiet and good baby so that mom is okay. And so just thinking about how pre-verbal and how early and how biologically conditioned not real realizing your own needs may be, no wonder that it's difficult when you've opened the fridge and standing right there with the open fridge. It, it's, so, it, it's so deep that you m- might not have access to it. Right. I feel like so many people, um, I mean, this has been true of myself and so many of the people I work with, that we have issues um, prioritizing ourselves and um, just identifying those needs and putting them first, it's like, okay, well, we need to put ourselves at the top of our to-do list, we say. But what does that actually look like? That's a very hard thing for a lot of people to mm-hmm. um, wrap their minds around. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that can be a difficult thing. And I think that's why these conversations are so important. I'm curious, and maybe Roland can share too, and you can share and I can share from our own experience. How was it for you finding out what your needs were? Right. Um, well, one of my coping mechanisms that I've really been um, working on um, and that has helped identify a need for me um, 
is I have a large propensity to sleep really late. I have always um, had trouble with this, but it's, it kind of goes in waves. Um, and, you know, I, for some time I thought maybe I had a sleep disorder. Maybe there was like something really going wrong with me. I hadn't tests done, um, sleep studies. Um, and then I started actually, and no one found anything wrong, of course. Um, but then in, you know, the process of trying to identify, okay, so what's going on? And realizing that when I hit snooze or I turn off my alarm or I burrow under the covers, I'm literally hiding. It's a reflex to stress or anxiety um, for me. I'm just, I hide from my stressors by being unconscious, by going to sleep. I was realizing that in those moments I was, my heart was racing or my stomach was queasy. And I was labeling that feeling as being tired, mm. where, where the feeling was actually anxiety about mm. maybe things I had to do that day and being able to relabel it and realizing, no, I've slept 10, 12 hours. I'm not tired. What I am is anxious and I'm trying to avoid more anxiety. Um, and being able to label that allows me to actually address the anxiety as opposed to my prior coping mechanism, which I still, you know, work through. I mean, don't think you ever get to a point where it's like, oh, this isn't something I have to think about anymore. Um, but it helps stop the cycle of being stressed and anxious. So I sleep in. So then I wake up and I'm frantic and in a panic because my inbox is already full. Um, I don't have time to prepare for this interview or that meeting. So I'm having to stay up late to finish work. So then I'm not able to have the free time I want with myself or with my partner or my friends. So I'm not getting any of that that I need in my life. And it's creating more stress and more anxiety and it creates a vicious circle. So identifying, you know, in that instance that, oh, it's anxiety and I need to lay in bed and realize that that's what this is and try to figure out what's causing me to have these feelings, to breathe through it, to really think about what's triggering these thoughts and what I can do to actually address those feelings as opposed to, you know, being self-sabotaging actually, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that you shared that you actually had to really become aware, like observe and become very aware and reflect on your experience to see, okay, what's happening under what feels like I'm kind of depressed or avoidant. Oh, under it, there's a queasiness in the stomach and there's a racing heart rate. And then that is more like anxiety or fear or worry or concern and way more like being avoidant, in which case you know, it's like that know thy enemy kind of thing. It's like, you know, exactly, you know what you're actually dealing with. And when you know what you're actually dealing with, it's so much easier. It's so much more common sense to track it back to, okay, what is it that I'm actually worried about? And what is that? What does that emotion need? Or what do I need most right now? And usually it's a physical for most of my clients, because I work with chronic pain, it's a physical symptom that is our door. It's like Alice in Wonderland, kind of. It's a physical symptom that's the door to kind of open and come in and see, okay, there's a whole bunch of things here that we need to unpack. But under it, 
we're going to discover what is it that you want to do or need to do. What do you want to do about this right now? And it gives you a sense of agency and it gives you a sense of understanding yourself, which is very empowering. Almost certainly. You know, I think the idea of self-care can seem a bit like nebulous and like another big to-do task um, or that it's certain actions. Um, But kind of taking going a step back and saying, okay, well, I can't care for myself until I establish what my needs are. Um, And realizing that it's going to be different for you than it is going to be for everybody. And it is such a process. It's not a quick, you know, write down, you know, you know, another to do list or um, it really takes a lot of um, introspection within in that in that moment, um, I mean, both in the moment and afterwards, um, to kind of break down. Okay, what happened there? Like, what what jump started this chain of chain of events, and how do I feel at the end of it? And is there a way that I could have dealt with that that would be um, more useful? Like you said, it's not that you're doing it wrong; it's that you haven't. It's finding finding a coping mechanism that is going to help you and meet your particular need. Mm -hmm. Um, And and... you go. (laughs) No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I I just feel like it, it seems like it's something that we would have learned really early on. I personally come from a culture where um, gender roles are still to this day, very, um, very different from how they are in the States And so there's this females in general just kind of give themselves to everyone around them to serve the family or do their social service or work service. And there isn't a lot of the self-care that I can contemplate for myself today. I don't think that my mom ever had a chance to do that. And so as it wasn't modeled, it becomes that we don't have a solid foundation to learn these things from. So it's for me, it was unrealistic to expect that it was going to be easy because it was never modeled. I had to build it from scratch. Right. I think something that's really interesting with women in particular is well, I feel that women have a very hard time prioritizing themselves from the get-go. Um, and they really struggle with feelings of being selfish, Um like, you know, they are used to, like you said, you know, giving to the family or supporting others. They're the caretakers, um, both, you know, you know, physically through acts as well as, you know, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, they take on, take on a lot. Um, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of times the discussion around women being able to prioritize themselves or take care of themselves comes back to the oxygen mask analogy. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're on a plane, the flight attendants tell you to put on your own mask before you help anyone else. And that's often applied to this idea of self-care. Well, you have to take care of yourself before you can effectively take care of anyone else. And while that's so true, um, and unfortunately, a lot of times, that's kind of the analogy that's needed for a lot of women to kind of make a step into really caring for themselves. But the truth is that every person deserves self-care irrespective of how it's going to affect everyone else in their lives. And that we all have an innate, um, we all innately deserve self-care just for the simple fact that we exist. Um, And 
self-care doesn't have to be another act of caring for others. Mm-hmm. It can be. And it's very true that by taking care of ourselves, we can better take care of others. But it's also important to realize that we deserve self-care for the pure um, fact of deserving it. Yeah, I think there could certainly be some sort of underlining, underlining, underlying um, feelings when you say, hey, if you want to take care of your family better, you first have to take care of yourself. And possibly subconsciously, they're thinking, well, I'm already taking care of my family, <laughs> you know? It's like, right? you know, so like, I want to take care of myself better. But on the other hand, then they feel guilty because they're spending more time taking care of themselves instead of their family. So it's like this sort of a guilt spiral. It's guilt and pressure. Oh, so much guilt. Mm-hmm. There's guilt mm-hmm. and there's pressure. There's the pressure that while I'm doing this, and this is why self-care is so difficult in the beginning, because it feels like while you are taking the time to journal or take a walk or do some self-touch or or meditate or go see a friend for a cup of coffee and not for work, it, it there's this sense of this pressure that sits in the background that if you don't, if while you're doing this, there's all this other stuff that you should rather be doing or you have to be doing. And we call that in my work, we call that survival pressure. And that was the pre- that's the pressure that we had to put on ourselves in the past to survive some difficult situation. Because there are difficult situations that we have to put ourselves aside to get through. But those should be more an exception and not the rule. We shouldn't live our whole life as if we're surviving. That's very, very threatening. And then the whole guilt thing is so common. Mm. But one conversation I have with my clients, I don't know if, if that would resonate with how you feel about it, is that guilt and love live in the same space. Mm. And, so, and so where there is love, where you deeply care, I deeply care for my husband and our time together, or I deeply care for my relationship with my family of origin or for a friend And when I am without those people and doing something for me without them, I can feel like, like I feel guilty for that because that's where, like, I feel like an interruption in love because I'm choosing me in that moment over them. But it doesn't have to feel like that. That's a lot more of an echo of our early development. The way I see it now is, oh, yeah, that's just guilt. That's what shows up in the love space. And it can be a lot gentler messenger than someone that you have to say, oh, I'm doing something wrong. Guilt doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It just means that there's love in that space, in in that context. (laughs) um, I think it's also like, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the guilt and love being together. It's that that guilt is the feeling, but it's not necessarily the truth. Like mm-hmm. you mentioned the, you know, the truth is, you know, that you love this person and you, um, you know, you care about them, but the truth is also that you, you know, you also matter and are important and that you're not detracting from anything by, um, giving time for yourself. Um, I know personally, one um, example that comes to mind is, um, a small group that I'm in and one of the women has a lot of trouble um, with coming to the group every week. Um, the um, group therapy of all women. Um, she's a mom. Her child is about a year old and she really struggles with taking an hour to come to group therapy every week um, because her husband has to, 
then watch the child. And she's not there for bedtime that night. Um, and she has a lot of struggle with that. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, it really is out of this place of love and not wanting to miss these moments. But if we think about how she would react to if her husband needed to do something for himself to take care of himself, mm -hmm. he was going to go to group therapy one night a week for an hour. And she had to do bedtime routine by herself. Would she think that that's, you know, an issue? Um, yeah. No, she would be glad that this person who she loves is taking care of himself. Um, and so it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting to think about it. Um, you know, this, you know, guilt and love, I think it's very true that they exist together and realizing it's important to realize that the guilt isn't always accurate. It's an indicator of um, how you're feeling, but we often don't need to feel this guilt that we, um, you know, impose on ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and what's the guilt here to tell us? Like one, one question that I teach, I, I lead a group and one question that we hold in the group when guilt shows up is what is guilt trying to protect? And we call guilt the guardian, the gate. Like, what is it protecting? And in this case, it's protecting your relationship with your child. Well, by going to therapy for this one hour in the group, you're actually going to enhance your relationship with your child. And all it takes is think about, wow, if my mom had gone to therapy an hour my whole life, my life would be different. <laughs> You know? Right, exactly. <laughs> and I, is, I always you know, think about that. It's generational, too, and how we learn to take care of ourselves, you know, it impacts, you know, generations, um, you know, our children and their children and so on and so forth. It really, um, it's a lead by, lead by example um, sort of thing. Yeah. So how do you help your own clients and your readers navigate these challenges? Um, one, I think opening up the discussion and conversation about it, just like we're doing here, I think is so important um, to kind of normalize the idea of taking care of yourself and to try to take away some of this guilt and to have an honest conversation um, about it and say, yeah, you might have these feelings, so what are we going to do with them um, when you do have struggles really prior prioritizing yourself for meeting your own needs. And I think it's important that we all realize that we all have, you know, these struggles. It's not, um, I don't think anyone's immune to needing to work on this area. Um, so I think that's helpful um, in taking some of the guilt or pressure off around it. Um, but then it's also kind of, you know, backtracking into figuring out identifying what these needs are and generally um, needs come up not necessarily through somebody thinking oh well I've, I'm feeling this or that but oh I'm you know someone's saying to me oh I'm really having trouble you know getting in my my workouts my 30-minute workouts every day I'm having trouble getting them in well why is that well I'm just so busy I have this and this and this to do well how could you make, you know, room for that in your routine? Well, I would have to, um, you know, not do X, Y, or Z obligation. Um, you know, often it's children or um, family members or sometimes work um, or just other pressures that we put on ourselves to take care of others. Like I have to be on this 
committee or doing this thing or have my house look X way. Um, well, what if we took 30 minutes out from like those other things? Well, then we start to feel guilt. Well, why do we feel guilt around taking about backtracking from those things? And, um, you know, it's kind of working backwards from there to figure out what, what is really prohibiting us? What's making our life so, um, what can't we walk away from for 30 minutes at a day? And are there things that we really should walk away from? Um, or what are those things in your to-do list, um, in your day-to-day life that are keeping you from saying yes to the things you want to be able to say to? Because um, I think, you know, we get into that saying no and it being hard and remembering that every time we say no to something, we're able to say yes to something else. Um, and realizing what it is that we really want to say yes to. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard because it's not like a quick, you know, like form you fill out or, you know, step by, you know, clean, tidy, step by step, you know, magazine friendly. You know, they always want to, you know, those, you know, three actionable steps and it's just going to be perfect and clean and just awesome. Um, and it doesn't work like that, but I think it's important to realize that it doesn't work like that because that takes some of the pressure off as well and realizing that it's not going to be a linear, um, process. And, you know, it's just constantly having these conversations about, okay, what's working, what isn't working. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, people come to me and they're just saying, you know, Oh, I'm so stressed. They talk about work and they're so stressed. Well, what, what do you need? What do you need to help feel um, less stressed or anxious or pressure Um, or just people get wound up about the idea of going to the gym for the first time in a long time Um, or that they're going to be, you know, not as strong or as fit as they were last time. And that can be a barrier. And, okay, what is the self-compassion we can apply to try to really work through these feelings um, and figure out what the, you know, what's really, um, what's the truth? You know, maybe you're going back into the gym and you're not as strong as you were, um, you know, 10 years ago when you were, you know, a college athlete or something. Um, But every time you go into the gym, you're stronger than you were the last time. And it's seeing each time you're, you know, investing in yourself as, a way of caring for yourself as opposed to a way of punishing yourself or um, really, um, I'm kind of losing my words, but um, yeah, figuring out, you know, it's just goes all back to that idea of figuring out what your needs are so that you can, mm-hmm. can meet them. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it's not not as tidy as we'd like. And and it's not. And I work with that daily in uh, in my explorations with some of my my somatic experiencing and norm clients, where we'll go into these deep explorations, and oftentimes with identifying needs, we use this one statement, and and you can try it on on yourselves, both you and Roland. But it's this statement: I have a right to recognize and acknowledge my needs and that might be all we do that one session is just to say this out loud and people 
will get so soft around their hearts with that because oftentimes their right hasn't been acknowledged by anyone around them. They grew up like that. They moved on to, you know, autopilot mode. They got married. And so everybody else's needs is always more important. So you have to sometimes almost give yourself permission to recognize and acknowledge your needs. And then once you've done that, then you can take more action. Otherwise, it always feels like you're stealing from someone to feed yourself. And it's a horrible feeling. Right. And I think there's a lot to be said with um, treating yourself um, with the same compassion and respect that you would your best friend or a loved one. Um, I think that often helps to kind of reframe it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so um, even doing even doing self com- um, compassion meditation, mm-hmm. you know, where you're sending love and um, well wishes to someone else, and then thinking. I'm going to send those same well wishes that I think other people deserve to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that can be a really, a really powerful um, meditation um, in terms of just kind of how we approach ourselves. Um, or even I've done meditations as whereas you approach yourself as a child mm-hmm. um, and just that kind of mindset switch of thinking about how you are the same being that you were when you were a little baby and the care and love that you would devote to that baby, you just still deserve it now. Um, I think it's very, very, um, it can be a moving thing to kind of really work through and like truly integrate and, you know, like you said, acknowledge the fact that you have a right to your needs and to be cared for. Absolutely. And it can become so tender. And um, I I feel like then, all of a sudden it stops, it almost solves the problem of self-care being one more thing on your to-do list because you are present in your life and when you're present in your life, you are not on your to-do list. You are just in your life and you get to care for yourself and reparent yourself in this different way. Definitely. So we were seeing more and more in the the media about self-care and I was just curious, like, what do you think? I mean, you're in the media. You you write about you it. You are the media. You are the media. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but, right. But, right. But where do you think the media has done a great job of in, encouraging self-care? And where do you think, uh, like, where's, where are they accurate? And where do you think they're sort of missing the mark? What could they do better? Right. Um, I think the intention to put um, self-care out there um is really growing within um, wellness, you know, wellness media as a whole. I think it's becoming more of a discussion, um, but I I guess I kind of alluded to it a little bit ago. Um, The fact that it's not so tidy is kind of an issue for a lot of media, especially um, any sort of service service-based media that want everything to be clean, tidy, actionable tips that are put in however many hundred words. Um, I mean, that's kind of like the bedrock of service journalism is that it's going to be very actionable. Um, And so it can easily fall into the trap of making it because it's 
they write everything to be so actionable that it comes off as a to-do list um, and it comes as, off as more things to check or even comes off as oversimplifying the real emotional and hard, deep um, work that has to be done. And instead of coming off as, oh, well, get down, sit down with a piece of paper for five minutes and, you know, write this out or get a gratitude journal. Well, like some of those things can be great, but it's not that simple. <laughs> um, and I think um, oversimplifying um, can make people feel like they're not getting it, like they're trying, but they're not getting there. Um, then also, I think it's important to realize that as self-care becomes more and more popular, there's, um, there's a market for it. I mean, um, it's being bought and sold, you know, like any other, um, any other commodity. Um, I mean, you look to social media and see, you know, a lot of times, you know, perfectly staged photographs. So, um, you know, lazy Sunday, um, you know, in bed. And, and I'm like, my bed has never looked like that, like perfect, perfect and wrinkle free. And he has makeup on. And how is her hair done? Like my hair looks ridiculous when I wake up the first thing in the morning. It's terrifying. Like, like this isn't like really accurate. This isn't what self-care is. Um, but no, there's, you know, this whole post about, oh, I'm taking, you know, self-care Sunday. And oh, well, then here's a link to my ebook or, you know, this, you know, it's, it's, 30, it's being 30, 30 days to better self-care. Yeah, 30 days to better self-care. It's a picture of somebody's butt and then talking about like self-care. And you're like, really? Like, what does this have to do with anything? Um, you know, it's, it's so, it's just so much. And, you know, then, you know, you look at, you know, physical, you know, things like, oh, you can buy this. Um, you know, I think there is a lot of, um, there are things that can be really helpful, like gratitude journals, like those are so helpful. And it can be so great to, you know, write down, physically write down things for which you're grateful for, or, you know, just any other form of journaling. But all of a sudden, there are, you, you know, you pay three times the price for a journal that's, uh, you know, embossed with um, a quote from, you know, some philosopher about being um, grateful for what you have in your life instead of just grabbing, like, you know, a little book from <laughs> Walgreens. Um, but I think, you know, that kind of exists, like, within media, both social media and um, print and online, there's a desire to say, oh, if you buy this thing, it'll help. Um, and it comes in with, you know, again, that, you know, actionable, that to-do list, put on the to-do list to buy this thing. And, oh, there's an app for that. And, um, mm -hmm. it, yeah, it's, um, it be just, it becomes another market. And I think it's important, um, that people realize that there's a market, um, for it and not necessarily realizing that all of that is intrinsically bad or something is going to, you know, obviously it's not going to work or whatnot, but realizing that, um, you are a consumer and, um, self-care is something that's um, being kind of, you know, packaged and sold by the media, um, and making sure that, you know, where you are investing your energy, your time, your money, um, in self-care is actually filling you up rather than feeling like another to do or stressful or 
kind of keeping up with the Joneses, like, oh, this person just got this, you know, I don't know, pretty, you know, I don't know, age plant or something. I need sage. Like, you know, it's <laughs> I don't sage and I like it, but um, it doesn't mean it's, we have to, you know, try to keep up with everybody else and what's working for one person will work for you or um, that all of it's going to necessarily work. Um, I, I think it's important. I think that this conversation is so important to insert um, because people really don't know. I mean, when you are tired and sleep deprived and maybe have some chronic thing that's ailing you, especially if it's more on the mental health side, it's so easy to get overwhelmed. And in a way it becomes like we, we look for those easy solutions, like a three day this or a five day that. And then we end up being disappointed when we see that, you know, the gold embossed journal doesn't work too. You're not more grateful. You're actually right. more frustrated. And I think in many ways this, I'm just going to lump it probably incorrectly under the, it's almost like there's like this new agey thing about it where it's like, just wish for what you want and it's going to manifest in your life and the universe will show you and look for the signs. I find that so dangerous. Because it keeps distracting right. us from the reality. And the reality is that this is a hard freaking planet to live on. And, you <laughs> exactly. know, there's there's no... And at best, you can become more present and more wise with the circumstances of how hard daily life is and more present to its joys. But, I mean, the, it can so easily... the The market can so easily derail us from what our heart really wants. And so I think that's such an important discussion. I'm so happy you're so level-headed about it. <laughs> well, I think I think this um, this market around and the quick fixes around self-care is something that we have all struggled with in terms of nutrition and exercise in the past. I mean, mm -hmm. look at you know the industry and you know whether it's you know a fad diet or that's you know marketing itself as you know, scientifically backed, even if it isn't, or, um, you know, did, I mean, oh, just this amount of products and, you know, whether you're looking at shake weights or, you know, those things you strap <laughs> on your abs, abs and zap you. My, my cousin and I, we had those back, um, I think in high school with those belts that shock your stomach and they're supposed to, you know, make you have six pack abs. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I've heard that I've heard their back. I've heard their back. Um, but you know, all these things, which I'm like, Oh no, they're back. That's horrible. I'm like, they were so painful. Um, but it's looking at all like these quick, you know, tests. And when you're tired and nothing's worked in the past, um, I think it's natural to want to look to these quick, quick fixes. But then the problem is when they don't work, we think that we've failed. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. When that's not the case at all. It's that this, this strategy or this thing, it doesn't, it's not working for us and we need to find something that is. And unfortunately, like you said, that's, that's difficult. It's hard and it takes a lot of work. Um, like in anything in wellness or fitness, um, it takes work. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not, it's not worth it. It's, um, it's totally worth it. So as, as we're having this conversation about self-care it's deeply intertwined with self-image and body image and this 
approach towards body kindness and body positivity. And of course, as we're getting ready for our interview, and I was thinking about what to ask you, I put in um, in our Facebook groups some. I, I put it out there and said, "Hey, we're having a great uh, person come, and we're going to interview her and talk about." self-care and we got a lot of questions but I chose this one in particular because it seems like no matter the culture and the place and the space because I go back and teach in Europe every summer this seems to be a common thing is that you start taking care of yourself but then you become connected with this just general lack of self kindness and self-acceptance so one reader wanted to know and this is her question how can you be more body positive and more body kind and accept your body if the media is constantly pouring out messages that challenge accepting your body as it is? And she said, I am terrified of going to the beach with people I don't know because I feel like because I don't look like those images, I'm going to be judged and rejected. Right. Oh, it just makes me so sad. Well, there, there, there are a lot of issues and like this one um, question that she really had fun. Um, I think one of them um, that's worth kind of bringing up top is the idea of being kind to your body and accepting it as it is. Um, I think we feel um, we all want to love our bodies and be more um, body kind. And I think a lot of times the media confuses being body kind with um, saying you don't want to change anything about your body and that if you do want to change anything about your body, well, you're not, you're not, you know, really loving yourself. And I think that's um, very incorrect. I think that you can, um, you can love your body and still want to change it. Um, you can you can want to get to a healthier weight or um, improve your endurance or become more you know functional in life um, to be able to move better and I think you can want that out of love and wanting better for yourself and wanting to be healthier or to have a better quality of life um, but then you can also want those things out of a place of body negativity or self-hate. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, caring for yourself and self-care can mean wanting better for your body and um, better for the physical being that, you know, we're in. Um, when that change is rooted in self-love um, versus, you know, self-hate, I think that's powerful in realizing that how you show up in your body does not affect your self-worth. And it's important to understand that. Um, but it's also okay to to want to get to a healthier place or to want to um, eat more greens or to work out more frequently. Like those are, those are worthy, you know, goals. It's important, but it's important that we approach them from a place of loving and caring for ourselves as opposed to wanting to um, find our worth and looking like those images in the magazines and online, like you mentioned. Um, And, you know, when it, you come comes to those images, I think it's um, really important to realize that our comparisons to others, um, you know, social comparisons, they happen automatically and so fast that it's, it would be great if we could say, oh, I'm going to see these images and that they're not going to influence how I 
see myself at all. Um, I think we can work on that, but I don't think that's ever going to happen 100%. Um, so I think it's important to consider what images and messages are being um, displayed to you, what you're taking in. Um, even if you're scrolling past a post online that's um, you know photoshopped or body um, negative, even if you're not like just sitting there and staring at it, you just scroll past it. It's influencing your your thought patterns, um, even subconsciously, within a fraction of a second. So I think it's important to curate and really be conscious about what media you're allowing into um, into your life to make sure that you're um, you know supported and surrounded by you know positive um, affirming messages and people. Um, in terms of you know going to the beach and everything, I think that's another interesting issue that I've been um, working on both personally and with um, with my trainees is this idea of how we um, you know we are going to look at other people in our immediate environment and there are going to be comparisons um, and you know for lack of a better, better word, you know, judging to some extent. But I think a lot of us tend to um, overthink um, how much people really pay attention to you and how much people really are judging you. Um, everybody is so caught up in their own stuff um, that they really pay very little attention to you um, or judging you. Um, it's kind of this idea that every person is a star in their own movie or their own book or whatever it is. And other people are operating in the background. You know, we have these secondary characters to our friends and family. And then we have just these extras, you know, and there are the people who are just laying on the beach who we never interact with. Um, and we probably don't give them much thought. Do you know, like, you know, what their body looks like or what their bathing suit was? Um, no. And just as little attention as you're paying to them, they're paying just that little attention to you. Um, and I think it can be um, helpful to realize that, um, you know, when you're walking down the street, everybody isn't looking at you and just like judging you. Um, yeah. Because I think we're so, we're so, we get so worried about that and realizing that, um, you know, for I mean, for better or for worse, everybody's so caught up in their own stuff that they're not they're not judging you as much as we we worry they are. There is a, a fun DBT exercise. Um, DBT is a form of, of psychotherapy for those who don't read that kind of stuff. And it's in it's in an emotional eating book we'll share in the in the show notes. It's lovely. But the author says, practice this instead of comparing yourself to everyone you meet. <laughs> Compare yourself to every fourth person you meet. And it's a really mind-boggling exercise because we, you can't really compare yourself to everybody. We're usually choosing to compare ourselves to just specific people like the images in the media that we see or 16-year-old California girls as we do here in Southern California, even though I'm almost 40. So when you compare yourself to every fourth person, something really crazy happens in your head. It's like, wow, people are all sorts of shapes and sizes. But that's right. not what's going on when you do it unconsciously. When you're doing it unconsciously, you don't compare yourself to every fourth person. You're choosing who to compare yourself to, but you don't know that you're choosing. 
it was exactly such, that's so true it was such a revealing exercise for me i remember it was an audiobook and i was driving my car and i was i was on a freeway and i was like i'm just having such a moment of revelation right now i almost like want to stop on the side of the freeway and just jump or scream or do something physical it was such a huge change for me and it created a lot of freedom and and looseness in how I was viewing myself at the time. It was super helpful. Yeah, there's the idea of these, you know, you do, you know, upward or downward social comparisons. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be that we seek out these upward comparisons, um, which upward and downward is kind of, uh, kind of negative. And, <laughs> but we, um, but we <laughs> that's what, that's what they call them. But they, um, you know, we basically look to compare ourselves to people who we think are better than us in some some way um where and that has a large effect on how we perceive ourselves and our own um worth but it's interesting that we tend to put less stock in these downward social comparisons um which i like how you phrase it as you know everybody being different because i think um you know, then you're looking into, oh, I'm better than, you know, this person or I, I'm, you know, I don't know, we're comparing ourselves again. Um, and I think it's important to when we are making these comparisons to realize the diversity mm -hmm. that we all have. And that that's a good thing. And it's not a scale of better to worse that we're all trying to rank on um, in our comparisons. Working with little kids um, who may have become more aware of their self-image, especially girls, like my girls that are like 8, 9, 10, 11. We always talk about dogs and dog breeds and different kinds of dogs and poodles and chihuahuas and Great Danes and Bassets and how they're different and how humans are like that too. And, and girls will grasp it when they're that young and they'll laugh about it and it opens a lot of space. So hopefully we can open that for the adults as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. oh, most certainly. I think we all need it. And it's a lot of that, um, you know, reprogramming and relearning things that unfortunately a lot of us didn't learn when we were, you know, eight, nine, ten, um, like those girls. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Alicia, it's been great. Hmm? Yeah, go ahead. It's been great having you on the show. We've learned so much. And I think this this topic is so important. And I hope we can do our part to, to get this out there in the media and just have like you're such a good positive role model and so it's just been a pleasure having you on the show if people cool. want to get in touch with you or find out more about you where should they look yeah so i am on social media like everybody else i'm ka fetters across handles um or platforms to try to keep it easy um my website is also um, kalishafetters.com and anyone can, you know, shoot me a message through the site, go straight to my email. So I won't miss it. Um, and, you know, I just, you know, reach out to me through um, social media, through my website. I'd be happy to chat. Um, it always makes me um, excited when somebody does reach out. And I, you know, so appreciate you having me on um, the show to talk to you guys about this topic. I think it's so important and I love what you're doing um, in this space and i'm excited to um be part of it so thank you thank you thank, thank you. you for being on for dessert i'm going to read a quote from one of your um recent um newsletters that you sent out in an article on your blog and i'm going to link to it because it's just wonderful so here's what our guest says self-care 
learning how to identify your own needs and then address them is complicated. And for each person, it looks different. For me, self-care is about recognizing the behaviors, thoughts, and habits that signal my depression or anxiety arising, or that I'm not using the tools in my toolboxes to address them, and instead I'm falling into unhealthy, counterproductive coping habits. It's about recognizing what steps are important for me in times like that and prioritizing myself. It's about valuing my own health and well-being as I would anyone else's. And my wish for all of you listeners and for us here on this call is that we become increasingly self-aware and gentle with ourselves and that we can meet our needs as they arise moment to moment. May you all be well. Yes, thank you so much. And uh, give yourself permission, people. Talk soon. Thanks again for joining us. If you like the show, help us spread the word by giving us a rating and review in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you found us, like Podbean, Stitcher, or Google Play. Every review helps others just like you find our show. As always, you can find this episode's show notes and more at eatmovelive52.com slash notes. Thanks again for listening. Now here's a little more proto-funk by Kevin McLeod to send you on your way. Oh, my God.